Good morning. Great fellowship. Seems like it's, uh, this is our group for this morning. So we're going to start our service and prepare our hearts to continue to worship through singing, uh, through the communion, and also that the Lord speak to our hearts through the message. So you're welcome to stand up as we open our time of singing.
to be together again after our service was put just online last uh, Sunday. But God is good. It's great, great to hear your voices. Uh, I hope this is your prayer for this year. You know, in your presence, all my fears are washed away. And I pray that we pray that his presence be in our hearts as we face these times. Uh, you know, uh, we're praying that it's, it's just like the rain and the sun. All days are made by God, even if it's a cloudy and rainy day or a sunny day. So the last year and this coming year, they are made by God, and he hasn't returned yet. So we continue waiting for his return with our eyes focused on him. So that's our prayer for today as we continue. Lord, uh, we pray that our uh, emotions and our, um, uh, our feelings don't be based on uh, things that we see or that we perceive, but they be focused in what is true, that they be focused in your word. So as we face this new year, we pray that we have more of you and less of us, less of this world and more of you. Lord, may we commit our lives to you as we overflow and just proclaim the good news to others. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. We can't here to empty ourselves. Lord, we are not here to put a show or to just uh, sing empty words or to uh, proclaim something that is no from you, but we are here to to worship you, to put our hearts uh, exposed for you to transform them and to change us and to renew our minds. So we want to lift you up in worship and praise. In this church, you've been so faithful. You've been so good to us. It's not because of the work that everybody wants does, but it's because of you being the center of our hearts and the desire for you to be lifted and to be worshipped. May this year be a year that you be honored and that you be blessed, that you be worshipped and that you change hearts and you bring many that they need you, Lord, that you will rescue them from the sinful loss of this earth. So thank you again. May you be honored with our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, Happy New Year. And uh, we are going to take some time as usual to say hi to each other. I feel kind of mellow today, right? I should be more excited. <laughs> The lights are a little bit dim. <laughs> Just turn around and say hi to each other. <laughs>
Good morning. You know, I like that greeting when you say good morning and, it's, and everybody sound off. You know it's a good day. <laughs> I am so thankful to be here. We're supposed to be in North Carolina right now, but God's in control and I'm not. And so we're here and so thankful for that. And as I was thinking about what I was going to say when I came up this morning and talking to the Lord in the fitness arena, and when people make New Year's resolutions, exercise is at the top of the list. Over 52% of the people in the nation said that they want to exercise more. They want to lose weight, get organized, learn new skills, live life to the fullest, save money, quit smoking, spend more time with family. And those are some of the top things on the list. And then right now, we said 65% of the people in the United States said that they're believers or Christians. If it's 65%, why do more people want to exercise? I want to read a verse to you that I think it kind of get everybody's attention a little bit. I came prepared. <laughs> okay, 1 Timothy 4.8. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value of all things. And we're thinking about the body that we have instead of thinking about the spiritual on the other side. And where's our focus at? And so in your seat back, you'll see a sheet kind of like this. And it's a yearly reading plan. And I want to put it in perspective for everybody, not to make it harder, but help you just think about it. It's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. If you read three to four chapters a day, you can read the Bible in a year. And most people say, I don't have time. But I say, if it takes an hour to eat every day, you have time. <laughs> and it was just, just in that, you know, to challenge people to say, hey, we can read the Bible in a year. But I want to encourage everybody, this year, make it your plan to go deeper in your intimate relationship with Christ. So then as we grow then we'll produce more fruit. So when you look at the bulletin, there haven't been anything that really changed in the bulletin. Everything's going to start back where it left off from last year. And I want to challenge you, as I challenge myself at the same time, to make sure you read over this blue part here. We're praying for the body. And I forget to look at it sometime. And I want to encourage everybody, let's keep praying for one another and keep lifting each other up and building each other up. My wife and I, as we was talking, it's things I want to change. But you know where New Year resolutions came from? It came from the Babylonians. And we think about the Babylonians, they were destroyed in 539. And they made New Year resolutions to their gods and then to save money. And when we look at that, you look, you look in Revelation and look at the seven churches, and you see the fault that God found in those different churches. There one of the few that he didn't find any fault in. And it's some of those things, pagan things that we, we talk about, Baal, Baal, and the different things that's still going on today. And you see how it's affecting our nation and affecting the world at the same time. And so we have to put on that armor and protect ourselves. 
So let us pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for the body. I'm thankful for all my brothers and sisters that made it out today. And those that are, that's at home and didn't feel like driving in today, I'm thankful for them. And some that doesn't feel well today, continue to comfort them and give them peace that passes understanding. And those that have lost loved ones, comfort them as they grieve and draw them to you. Those that's going to be going to funeral services this coming week that never heard the gospel or haven't heard it in a long time, that they would change and they would come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And I ask your blessings on Rob as he come up to preach your word, that you hide him behind that cross, strengthen him, give him the words to say, and help his voice to hold together as he shared the word, as he shared that he's a little bit under the weather, but we're so thankful that he's here and that he loved you so much, and he came. And so I'm thankful again for everybody that's here, and I thank you for everything that you're doing in our lives, and we're not starting just a new year. Each day is renewed, and we got a new day to glorify you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Feel free to stand up in this worship.
Chapter in chapter four of the book of John, verse fourteen says, "For whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life." When I was thinking about the scripture, I was thinking about my well in my house, how it feeds everything in the house, and we drink from that water, and God is so good with that. And um, I just wanted to remind you as we come to the table to examine your heart. And ask yourself that question. I am overflowing as a living water because Jesus, that's our desire that he emptied us, that we could be filled with him. And like it says, it says, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. As we prepare ourselves in this earthly life, we train ourselves to live a spiritual life living in the truth, walking in the truth through God's words. Donald was reminding you to read God's word. And, uh, and then we remember that we're, sin- we're sinners. That's what we're here. That's why we need Jesus. If not, we wouldn't need him. But we are in everybody who have sin. That's what God's word says. We all have sin. So I invite you to examine yourself, confess your sin before you come to the table, and ask the Lord for forgiveness because he's the only one who can forgive you. We cannot even forgive ourselves sometimes for the things that we do. And I remember in Exodus when Moses he was receiving the tablets and it says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He forgives our iniquities, our sins, our transgressions. He is God. And it's because that abundant grace that flows from him. So as we sing this song, I invite you to to prepare your heart as we remember the great sacrifice that our Savior pay a big price for my sins, for your sins.
You may be seated. We're going to prepare for communion, and so, Jaden, go see mom. Josiah, see mom. Watch it. A few weeks ago, as we prepared for Christmas, and we were talking about the image of God in Christ, we talked about John 1, 14. It says that he came and he dwelt among us, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We talked about the fact that God is 100%, Jesus is 100% man, he's 100% God, and you can't take away any of those things. And as we think about that, he dwelt among us, he tabernacled, he came. As we think about this new year, this is a perfect time to do communion, and the idea is that Christ gave us something to remind us that he is dwelling among us. And this is perfect as we think about how can we be planted by the streams of living water? How can we be firm in our foundation? And it is through Christ. It's through his death, burial, and his resurrection, through his relationship with us because of his work for us and in us continually. And we want to acknowledge that work. It's an amazing thing. The more that we acknowledge his work and he's dwelling among us, his, his work, his priestly work in us, the more we rejoice, the more that we conform to his image, the more that we're prepared for the ministry of glorifying God our Father. C.H. Persian said this, and it's very apropos, uh, considering that this is our first Sunday of the new year. And he said this, You shall lay your plans and arrange all your machinery and start your schemes, but without the Lord, you can do nothing. We want to acknowledge that this morning, that we cannot proceed without the Lord. And that's why we are told to often do communion in remembrance of Him. We cannot proceed. Everything else is just mechanical. It's just planning. But in reality, it is all just nothing without the Lord. So as I read of Christ's priestly duty, chapter 9, I'd ask that you'd bow in your hearts and bow your eyes and your minds and just put your time in perspective and prepare for communion this morning and encourage you as if you are a believer, you've put your faith and trust in Christ. You just don't know about Christ, but you have a relationship with Christ. He has adopted you into his family. You know that, that you uh, t- take communion. And parents, you can use this time to teach and encourage uh, the kids that they know who Christ is. So let's read out of Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 11, it says, But when Christ appeared, when he dwelt among us, as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by the means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling and the defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more 
will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is still alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when Every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people. He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of my covenant that God commanded to you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ is there on our behalf. As we prepare this year, no matter what your plans, thoughts, your desires are, may it be first and foremost, may it be in remembrance of the one who has prepared the perfect will to give us eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a very special time for us as a body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this great time of worship. We pray that we reflect our hearts to realize that real and true contentment comes through acknowledging the work that you've done on our behalf. And Lord, we acknowledge that you are still doing that work. Thank you that he who called us is perfect. Thank you, Jesus for your work. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for calling us, raising us in our hearts to, from a dead heart to a living heart, acknowledging you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, we are sinners. We can do nothing perfect outside of you, but with your work in our life, we can share in that right living that you call righteousness. I pray, Lord, that we would use this time to acknowledge you so that way we would be content with what we have and we would remember that it is your work and not our work. We thank you that we can worship you through this time this morning of communion with you, sharing the gospel, the good news of what you have done for us. And we can share that to one another this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.
Jesus, Lord, we just want to lift this time up to you. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. Thank you for who you are, for that sacrifice. For the crucifixion and also the resurrection, Lord, of the significance of that work. Lord, I pray that as we come into this time that we can surrender things to you and lay things down before your feet in remembrance of things that you went through the body, of what it can do for our body here in this church, how it's unified by you, Lord, and pray that we can think of that and give you the glory in your name. Amen. We do this in remembrance of him.
Let's pray together as we share in this amazing gift of the blood of the Lord Jesus. Heavenly Father, we are stopping just for a moment and considering the gravity and the reality of what it is that we hold in our hands as we have this cup representing the blood of the Lord Jesus. And we realize that, that the blood of Jesus represents him giving everything, that he held nothing back, that all things through that blood were given to us. And so we, we're just stopping to say thank you, and we're stopping to recognize that with that gift of everything, what more could we want? What could we lack? And we're asking that you'd give us such satisfaction in sharing together in this your very life, that it would show in everything we do, not just this week, but in this entire year as we prepare to enter 2022. Help us to do it in recognition of the gift and of the extent of that gift and how that gift can permeate everything about us for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think that's my cue, that it's my time to come and get to share with you the Word of God this morning. I've been anticipating this for a while, expecting that uh, we'd be able to share together again on this idea of contentment, really the rich life of loving what I have. And uh, we, we talked about some last time uh, that we were together, and we, we were going to do this last week, and so... Um, it's got, it's a lot nicer to have all of you here to talk to. Um, talking to an empty auditorium is not the same as talking to you and getting to share with you and getting to get the feedback that you give as we communicate together about the Word of God. And I want to invite you to do that this morning. Really, as we are here, it's true that I am the one that is presenting to you the Word of God. But it is a two-way street because... Uh, you also are sharing in the Word of God. And just to let you know, the very Word of God that I here present to you this morning is addressing me. It's addressing me. So as I share this with you, I want you to know that I expect to be convicted by the same Holy Spirit who is working in you to convict you of His Word and His truth as well. So I'm inviting you to join me. We're going to be looking in a few moments at Philippians chapter 4, another very significant passage of scripture in which we understand something of what it means to be content and how to practice contentment in a world that is rife with all the things and stuff of current materialism. But I want to start by taking you back uh, to where we were last time when we talked from 1 Timothy chapter 6. So you can also turn there. You know, this time of year really is a, a test of the ability to be content. There's stuff everywhere. Everything that's presented to us is about getting something new, about being able to give something, or as a kid at least, especially anticipating the possibility of receiving something. And there's a kind of funny emptiness that often takes place after all the gifts have been opened. And it's like, so that was it. 
There we are. That's all there was. And it may have been the best, quote, Christmas ever, but somehow we find that all of the stuff, no matter how perfectly every gift was aligned, still leaves us feeling a little empty. And it's because that stuff can't ever satisfy. There's another test that often happens at this time of year. You might have had it happen to you this year, and that is you get Christmas cards from old friends. Christmas cards from old friends who are living perfect lives. <laughs> they, uh, they tell you all about their lucrative, meaningful jobs, about their big houses, their super successful, smiling kids, their exotic vacations, and you think, so how did I get the coal in my stocking? Everybody else got candy and oranges, and I have the coal in my stocking. What is it that's taking place in my life? How did I miss out on all the things that God could have given to me? But that really is based on two fallacies. It's based first on the fallacy that what we see in the lives of others is actually the whole story. And it's not the whole story. But there's a second fallacy, and that is the fallacy that more is better and that less is by necessity worse. So, so it might even be true what they're saying in their Christmas card, and they really are living a life of tremendous pleasure and with every kind of good thing heaped upon their experience. But is it true that more is necessarily better, or on the contrary, that less is by necessity worse? And we want to talk about that this morning. We talked about having little last time. This morning we're talking about what it is to have even less than little. So last time, First Timothy chapter 6, how to love what we have when what we have is little. You'll remember that Paul said in First Timothy 6, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. He continues, For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have, and here it is, he gives two things that we can have that provide for contentment. If we have food and clothing, Paul says, with these, we will be content. He goes on to warn us, but those that desire to be rich, that is, those who set their affections on more, right? Those who set their affections on more, he says, fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Is it always better to have more? Paul argues, no, at least not if the more is the thing which you are seeking. It's not always better to have more. And another word for the love of more is a little more shocking to us, but it's actually the word lust. Lust. Another word for the love of more is lust. Even our prayers can be hindered by our lust, you find in the book of James. James tells us in chapter 4, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your lusts, on your passions. And so, we find that lusting for more to heap upon ourselves is a very serious thing. I think that sometimes we think of the desire for more and, on the contrary, the idea of contentment as kind of second-class issues. 
The, the desire for more is, it, it may be a sin, but it's kind of a soft sin. And, and contentment, it's a virtue, but it's kind of a second-rate virtue. It's not really a top... I mean, when we think top-rate virtues, those first class and the echelon of virtues, well, that would be definitely love. And maybe we would include faith. But contentment's like, well, I don't know. It's kind of... I mean, it's really important, and it's something God says we're supposed to do, but it would be definitely on a tier below. But I don't think that that's actually true. In fact, listen to what Paul describes as the result of not being content, and you tell me what you think whether this is or is not a second-rate virtue. This is the kind of ruination that Paul says comes with the lust for more. And he says it here in 1 Timothy 6. He says it is through this craving for more that some have wandered away from the faith and have, listen to this word, pierced themselves through with many pangs. So the love of more can actually result in losing that which is the most. We, got, we get so caught up in trying to get things that we're seduced and led astray from the only path that leads to getting what matters most. And Paul chose in this word pierced a super intense word to describe the kind of pain that comes to people whose love of more, love of money, leads them astray. The word pierce is not just to prick like a kind of a prick you would get from a rose thorn. I, I raise roses, lots of them, and um, it's a yearly battle to prune them. And sometimes it feels like the roses are winning. Uh, usually during rose pruning season, I will have scratches all the way up my forearm because roses prick you. But that's not as intense as this word describes. In fact, um, it's not even the kind of prick that you can get when you go and pick citrus fruit. I grew up in Northern California, and um, citrus, you know the kind of thorns that lemons and oranges have? Yeah, they're serious, right? They are serious. My grandfather grew great big lemon and orange trees in his, on his property in Penryn, California, and we would sometimes go pick some of those fruits. And it was a little bit of a battle, right? The bush versus me. I want the fruit, and the bush is keeping the fruit. And um, those thorns you do not want to have prick you because they are big and they are tough and they are serious. But the word Paul uses is yet more intense than that. The idea of the concept of pierced is to be run all the way through like meat that is put on a spit in preparation to be roasted. Yeah. And this isn't just one piercing that takes place from one end or from to the other end or from one side to the other side all the way through, but many piercings Paul is talking about, like the stabbings of a sword when an enemy wanted to make sure that you're really truly dead. The vicious soldier might just run his victim through again and again, maybe because of rage or maybe just to be sure he actually had done his job. That, Paul says, that is what the love of more will do to you. Now, are you with me? This is where we've been in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Last time we were together, Paul says, the lust for more, the lust for more, the desire to have more will actually, can actually lead to you being run through from side to side, from end to end, over and over and over again, like the thrustings of a sword from an enemy who is going to make sure that you are good and dead. 
That's the kind of pain that the love of more, the love of money, can produce for us. Yes, it can. So Paul urged Timothy, you might remember from last time, he said, escape the love of things. Bolt, beat a trail out of there. Remember that you are not strong enough to tempt temptation and win. Get out of there. And he said, then chase after loving God. Don't just turn from lust. Turn to God and pursue him. He continues, struggle in the noble contest. Agonize to win. Make the prize. The prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, your only objective. What are you after in life? Well, I want to have the Lord Jesus and... Wait, 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 wait. That's the problem. That's your catchword. That's your signal right there. I want the Lord Jesus and... No, I want the Lord Jesus. I am after the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus alone. And then he says, seize life eternal. To sum it up... We came to the conclusion that we can love what we have when we have little by building this life on the life to come. And you may remember that we talked about life, this life, really even the best things of this life as being like appetizers that are anticipatory of the main course. So that's the way we treat this life. Does that mean we don't enjoy what God gives us? No, he gives us food and clothing. And Paul says with these, we can be content And so we receive those things both with gratitude and thanksgiving, but we don't rest our hopes on them. And we pursue not those things, but we pursue the Lord Jesus himself and the prize of the high calling of God in him. We can be content with little, even just food and clothing. But I want to show you this morning that Paul goes further here in Philippians chapter 4 from being able to be content with little, to being able to be content with even less than little. If you want to flip over to Philippians chapter 4, and join me there, Philippians chapter 4, we read these words in verses 10 through 12. Paul writing, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now listen to what Paul says. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now stop right there. We're going to come back to that, but I want you to think about what Paul just said. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He just wrote a completely blank check. You caught that, right? A completely, totally blank check. In other words, any situation in which I find myself, I have learned to be content. Well, I've got some learning to do, Paul. I'm going to need to know how to do that. He says, and he goes on to tell us what that blank check looks like. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in Any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, are you catching the less of this passage? In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, really all we have to have in order to be content is food and clothing. And here he says, there have been times in my blank check experience that I haven't even had that. I have actually experienced hunger and 
need. Now, he's also experienced abundance and plenty, but he's experienced hunger and need. Now, I, I think that it's one thing to say, okay, I can, I can reckon with the fact that as long as my stomach is full and as long as I have warm enough clothing on my body, that's, you know, it's not, it's not a, a lap of luxury, but it's enough. Paul says, actually, there's a secret. You don't even have to have that. Not for real contentment. And that's what I want to show you this morning as we look at this. I, I went to the doctor recently, and um, the nurse asked me how tall I am. Uh, I told her I used to be 5'11". She says everyone talks about how tall they used to be. I suppose I might even have a harder time if I had actually ever made it to six foot. Uh, because I would have then had to get across that magic line and back down into the five-foot range. Uh, But there's something in us that has an ideal about everything in life. And then we build our lives around those ideals, those ideas of what really matter in life. Everyone really has them. Uh, They believe that the things that they believe would make life satisfactory, how tall they would be, how much hair they would have, how much money they'd have, how big a house, how many kids, how good a job, how long a life they would live. And we measure every one of our experiences by those ideals. It's not really a problem that we have ideals like that or that we even measure against those ideals. The problem, I want you to hear me, is in the ideals themselves. We tend to fashion our ideals based on our experiences, like nothing will really be good enough unless it meets or exceeds my rosy memories of my grandmother's rhubarb pie. Or we build it on other people's experiences. So that's my experience. We build also on other people's experiences. Normal people don't live life with one bathroom for eight people. We've been there. Or we base our ideals on personal drives, ambitions, appetites, or capacities. So I would be happy and productive if I just wasn't so tired all the time. Or I would be happy and productive if I had better health. Or I would be happy and productive if I just had, you fill in the blank, right? That's what we tend to do. So the problem, I want you to understand, is not that we are made in such a way as to base our understanding of life on ideals as it is in the ideals that we shape themselves. And we base those things typically on our experiences or on other people's experiences or on our personal drives or our ambitions or our appetites or our capacities. So, so in other words, we actually establish artificial dimensions for what a really good life is. Read that, a life I could be content with. And then we measure everything against that standard. If I just had... You understand what I'm talking about. I understand what I'm talking about from my own personal experience here. If I just add, I can't tell you the number of times that I have wrestled through. (laughs) Okay, I'll be really honest. As I was preparing this message, I was wrestling through this. I'm just being honest. Really wrestling through this. And, And so here's the deal. It's not that we have ideals. The problem is in the nature of our ideals themselves. How did we shape those ideals? So the problem 
is not measuring life, but in the standard by which we measure. Is the standard our measurement or God's? Who said that six feet tall is a particularly noble height? Or that small feet, as in the days of foot binding in China, uh, the small feet are especially beautiful? Those are artificial standards by which we measure life. I want to give you several, several clues that you might actually be struggling with discontent and not even know it. So how do we recognize our discontent? And, and one of the first ways, these are, by the way, not comprehensive, but give you a few little clues that you might be experiencing discontent and not calling it by that name or not even recognizing it. The first is anxiety. Anxiety is the result, listen here, anxiety is the result of trying to meet my ideals, those boundaries I've set up for what a good life looks like, trying to meet my ideals on my own. May I remind you that even food and clothing, which we talked about last time, are gifts from God? Paul's really picking up in 1 Timothy chapter 6 on a theme that from Jesus' own teaching in the Sermon on the Mount when he tells us that even food and clothing, as essential as they are, are not really the things that should be our primary focus. They're not the ultimate aim or of our earthly journey here. They're not to be our devoted pursuit. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Did you catch what he just did? He caught 1 Timothy chapter 6 and just told us, don't worry about these things. Don't be anxious about these things. <clears throat> what you'll eat, what you'll drink, or nor about your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Jesus is addressing our ideals. Are you hearing him do it? He's saying, let me tell you what really matters. Build your life on this. He goes on and gives us a couple of illustrations in Matthew chapter 6. Look at the birds. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, but your father feeds them. That deals with the food issue. He then goes on to say, look at the lilies. They don't toil or spin, but your father clothes them more gloriously than Solomon himself was clothed. That addresses the clothing issue. Food and clothing are themselves gifts from God. So he goes on to say, concluding, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. In other words, Jesus says, That's a pagan way of thinking. That's a pagan set of ideals. Jesus says, You are to think differently because you have a Father in heaven and he knows everything you need. To put Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6 and Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6 together, we discover that we can be content with little because we already have more. We have a Father who meets our needs and who cares for us better than riches or success ever could. If we're anxious... If we're anxious, there's a good chance that we're harboring a degree of discontent that might even be hidden to ourselves, but that anxiety is a trigger to us to say, take a look. Where is it that your ideals don't match God's ideals? Where is it that you're wanting more than what God has given you? We might even excuse this kind of discontent if we saw it because we say, 
but this thing is really a need. But Jesus cuts us no slack, and he says, be content. Your father is your provider. So we live according to what God has given to us. We're going to have to learn Paul's secret. Another signal point for discontent that might be uh, hidden to us oftentimes is actually pride. Pride is the result of believing that I've met my ideals on my own. So anxiety, I'm working hard to get to the place where I meet my ideals. Pride says, I think I got there. Both are kind of a problem, right? So I think, I think I've achieved it. I got where I wanted to go. But Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, actually in the context of um, a little different context than money. But he says, what did you, do you have that you did not receive? Is there anything that you have, he says, that was not a gift to you? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it. Now, Paul is specifically addressing the pride of the Corinthian believers who felt that they had spiritual significance because they had received the gospel from a particular preacher, frankly. And we understand something about that. It's like, oh, yeah, when uh, I, I shook hands with so-and-so once. Oh, really? And so does that, what does that, did you ever wash your hand? You know, I mean, it's, it's like, hey, look, Paul is saying the issue isn't who you received the gospel from, but that you received the gospel, that Jesus himself is the center. And that principle, that principle right there, is the principle that helps us to take our understanding all the way over to contentment with what God has given us in the physical as well as the spiritual world. The Corinthian believers were not seeking God. They were pagans. They were pursuing corruption, not the kingdom, but God found them. And through his word delivered by his men, he rescued them from themselves and their fast approaching destruction. He gave them life. But now they were boasting like they were the ones responsible for their new spiritual status as members of the family of God. Paul demonstrates that this idea is completely fallacious. You can flip over if you want to see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, And in verses 8 through 13, Paul uh, demonstrates by the lives of the apostles the complete fallacy of this way of thinking. Listen to what he says in verse 8. Already, he says, you have all that you want. Already, you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are, Paul says, fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ. We are weak. But you are strong. You are held in honor. But we, in disrepute, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, Paul says, and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. The apostles were put on display as evidence that the power does not rest with people. The power rests with God alone. 
That's really what the train of the apostles' experiences demonstrates to us. These men did not have the power in themselves. They could not boast as though they had actually met their own ideals. In fact, if you listen to what Paul just said, it was not ideal. I can't imagine. He set out one day and said, I would like to end my life as the scum of the earth. But that's what he says that he has become. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, God warns the people by Moses, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. Pride is really a signal that we are discontent. But sometimes it's hard to spot, because pride has a chameleon-like way of disguising itself as something virtuous. We might say to ourselves, I'm not proud. I just worked really hard to get what I have. (laughs) Or or we might even do this. I'm not proud. In fact, I just see how much worse I am at everything than my friends. But that may be pride lurking beneath false humility. True humility isn't self-centered, whether it thinks more or less of itself. It isn't looking at itself as the center at all. Here's a super simple way to gauge whether or not you're living in pride. How grateful are you? You know what gratitude does? It recognizes that somebody else is responsible for benefits in my life. Now, now don't just stop saying, I wonder if other people would consider me grateful. Stop with a really, really big rock. How grateful would God say that you are? I, I mean, we're told that we have... Re- Nothing that we have not received. Nothing that we haven't received. How grateful would God say that you are? If, in fact, God wouldn't rank your gratefulness too high, perhaps it's a signal that actually you're discontent, that you believe that you have met your own ideals. Lastly, for our little study this morning, I want to point out that sometimes frustration and anger are actually evidences of discontent. And I want to show you a progression by which we can see that. So frustration is the, an anger or the result of not meeting my own ideals or not meeting them fast enough. I can't tell you how many times I faced this one. Uh, it often comes out in me in impatience. And it often comes out even right, well, it comes out in my family. I'm impatient. I don't like the fact that I was misunderstood or didn't get heard the first time. Oh, (laughs) yeah, right? Uh, It's like, or I don't like the fact that um, we aren't doing it my way immediately because obviously it's best. Frustration and anger come right out like that. By the way, it's interesting that the very first thing in the list of descriptions of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love is, oh yeah, that's right, love is patient. So you know what it tells me? I'm not only discontent, but I'm also unloving in those moments. So let me show you a common progression for discontentment. Common progression for for discontent starts with disappointment. Disappointment is what happens whenever my appointments don't match God's appointments. Happens all the time, right? Last week, right here in this sanctuary, we had one of those. 
And we did. We had weather that prevented us from accomplishing what we wanted to do in gathering together as God's people to praise and honor him as a corporate body. Well, that was a disappointment. Apparently, my appointments did not match up with God's appointments. So now we're at a fork in the road. Okay, follow me. This is the progression. So the first thing that happens is we have a disappointment, perhaps like what happened last Sunday. And that results oftentimes, if we allow it, if we go the wrong direction at the fork in the road, with it produces frustration. Frustration is what happens when disappointment collides with ambition. With what I want to happen. So I always have a choice. There's always a fork at that moment to either get under God and go with him in the plan that is evidently his purpose or to resist. And resistance of God always produces frustration. Always. It always produces frustration. Disappointment that is not met with belief in the goodness of God clashes with my own personal plans and it produces internal conflict. Internal conflict that's called frustration. The heat from the friction between what I want and what God is doing, that's frustration. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. There's heat between what God is doing and what I believe that I want. Frustration takes root every time that I feed an expectation that is not of God. Notice that I feed it. Disappointment in life is common and normal. We, we all face disappointments. I'm disappointed that, um, that I got sick this week. Yeah, I, I don't like that. I have a choice. I have a choice. I'm at a fork in the road, right? Oh, am I going to go with God on this matter, or am I not? If I do not, it's going to produce heat between God and me that's called frustration, and that frustration, if I give it long enough, produces anger. Frustration that's not surrendered to God builds up like water behind a dam. When it spills over, it can either explode, that's hot anger, or it can erode, that's cold anger. The godly action, listen, the godly action is to lean into the purposes of God. To lean into the purposes of God, to welcome them as evidences of his goodness and kindness that are especially tailored to my needs. The net result, <coughs> excuse me, is worship. Think of Job. Could he have been frustrated? <clears throat> How about angry? Wow, I'd say so. This was not his plan. This was not what he desired to see happen. <clears throat> Frustration, like grief, can drive us to our knees to worship the God whose mysterious ways are good. You're at a fork in the road. You're going to be today. Watch, watch, you will be. There will be some way in which your expectation of life doesn't line up with what actually happens. That what actually takes place isn't what you thought should happen. God's giving you a choice. And that choice will determine whether or not you are truly going to operate on the basis of contentment or not. So is contentment sort of a second-class virtue? Wow, it's pushing deep into my soul. And it's going to take us to places that we really need to get to with God. So it's really important that we learn the secret of contentment. If we don't, our lives will be consumed by the love of more. Look again at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 12 
we read these words. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of abundance and need. Through all of Paul's experiences, and if you wanted more of them, you can check out 2 Corinthians chapter 6, but it includes beatings and imprisonments and going through riots and labor and sleepless nights and hunger, through a tremendous number of things, through all of these things, Paul was inducted into a secret that we must actually understand if we're going to be content. So I think we can all stop and say right here, I get it, contentment is pretty important to God. But how in the world are we going to do it? How are we going to actually practice contentment? There's a lot of different ways that you can look at the answer. The Stoics had an answer for contentment. They valued contentment. And, um, and so they generated contentment, their idea of contentment, from a self-reliant determination to accomplish contentment. I will be content. But really, contentment isn't just a stiff upper lip. It's not just gritting your teeth. It's not just determining that you're going to accomplish a virtue that kind of contentment may produce an outward conformity to an ideal, but it's brittle. I've worked a lot with glass over the years. Glass is very strong, and it's also very brittle. And when it breaks under enough pressure, which is what would happen with the Stoics' answer to contentment, under enough pressure, when that breaks, it lacerates and wounds deeply. The Stoics' answer was to try hard. Try really, really hard. Uh, the hedonists had another answer. The hedonists' answer was, why try? Why try? Uh, they, they felt that just go for it. Enjoy what you want to enjoy. Really, it is, in one sense, a small capture on what we've been studying for months on the book of Ecclesiastes. Because Solomon gave himself to the hedonist answer. He said, let's try everything. Let's give ourselves to all that could possibly be enjoyed and see what happens. He, he really tested himself and the world in five different areas, wisdom, pleasure, work, money, and significance. In each of these areas, Solomon poured himself into the hedonist answer, why try to be content, just get more. And he found the shocking answer that no matter how much you have, no matter how much, you never have enough. I've worked with a lot of wealthy clients over the years and um, that are by my center wealthy. Uh, by the way, wealth is a relative term. Uh, so, but by my standard, these people, people were wealthy. Um, and I'm guessing that most of them don't sit back and lounge in their big fancy houses and think, I have arrived. You know why? Because it only takes looking up the street to see someone who has a bigger, fancier house. They have fancy cars, but they don't have a yacht. And um, they, they have a nice house, but they don't own a resort in the Mediterranean. Because wherever you are, there's always more. There's always some way to look at it and say, well, I don't think... And so we pursue it as though somehow the getting of more is the answer. That's the hedonist answer. 
The Stoics said, we're just going to try. We're going to put this virtue on like an outer garment. We're going to wear it, and somehow we're going to be content. The hedonists said, why try? Let's just go for it. We're going to get more and more and more, as Solomon did in the areas of wisdom, pleasure, work, money, and significance. But nothing has the power to actually satisfy John D. Rockefeller, business tycoon in the late 1800s and early 1900s, said, it's wrong to assume that men of immense wealth are always happy. Because they aren't. No, the secret is much deeper than the self-sufficiency of the Stoics or the unfettered pleasure-seeking of the hedonists. Here's the secret. Are you ready for it? The secret answer. Well, it's the next verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We tend to rip that verse out of context and say it just means I can do anything, like leap over tall buildings in a single bound. Uh, Well, but wait, what Paul is specifically saying, there certainly is application to a wide variety of different areas of life, but the specific thing that Paul says, get this, God is strong enough to make you a typically self-serving, self-seeking creature content. That's how strong he is. You want to know how strong God is? He's strong enough to make you content. It's not really in the gym or in an athletic competition that we see the strength of God put on best display. It's not in genius or eloquence. It's not in leveraging the power of machines to move mountains or to build roads or to send rockets into space. It's not in money or significance or pleasure. Real strength, real strength is demonstrated in the power to walk through little and even through less than little with contentment. That's because real contentment is a demonstration every time of divine power. Christian contentment is squarely founded on the power of God. When Jonathan was in Karamoja, Africa, what was it, a couple of years ago now, um, he was about five miles from base, from the mission station where they were um, going to go back to. And it was one of those, as I understand it, hot, hot, searingly hot summer afternoons in Uganda. And there was a long, red, dusty road to get home. And um, Jonathan was fairly obviously not from the area. And um, so as he and his friend Lochap were preparing to begin this trek in the midday sun back home, uh, he could hear people laughing on the side of the road. Of course, he doesn't speak Karamajong. So his friend Lochap interpreted Lochop said, they're saying, this one, he will not make it. This one, he will not make it. And that's exactly the case when it comes to us and trying to be content in any other way than by the power of God. Our own souls tell us that it's true if we really look deeply enough. This one, he will not make it. Our enemy assures us that it's true. This one, he will not make it. And sometimes our own friends, however well-intentioned, can help us out by pointing out the obvious fact that we are not strong enough to stand against the tide. This one, he will not make it. We have to practice this secret of contentment. I want to show you three ways to do that. 
because we all know this verse. It's on every kitchen wall, right? And it's, it's framed in different places, in different people's homes. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So tell me how to do that when it comes to actually being content. Let me show you three different ways that that will make a difference for us this morning. Three things we need to know to be content with less. And the very first one is super simple. You're no pauper. You're no pauper. If you were to look over with me at Second Peter chapter 1, you would read these words. His divine power, speaking of God, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Let me say that first part one more time. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us most of the things that pertain to life and godliness. Oh, that was misreading. Excuse me. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Guess what? You are no pauper. You have everything you need to live a life of godliness. That's what we're told. You are not a pauper. Get this. God has already given to you everything that you need through Jesus. You're not a beggar trying to get a few scraps to stave off starvation. You're equipped with all the power you need to do what you're called to do. So give it everything you've got. Peter says, make every effort. But that's not a try-hard spirituality. That's not the Stoics' answer. That's putting the work and power of God to work in your life. When, you're tempted, when you run into a situation where you're tempted to grumble, to complain, to grow discontented, lean into divine power. It's yours. And then charge the enemy. You're no pauper. You're no loser. You're no loser. In Second Chronicles chapter 25, King Amaziah, you might remember him, and you might not, He mustered a great big army. It was 300,000 soldiers strong. But he didn't think that it was strong enough. So he hired another 100,000 mighty men from Israel. So he was the Judean king. And he hires another 100,000 men from Israel to try to get them to join forces with him so that he would then have enough. Now we're 400,000 strong. That's a lot of soldiers on one field of battle. Verse 7 says, But a man of God came to him, to King Amaziah, and said, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you, for the Lord is not with Israel, with all the Ephraimites. But go, act, be strong for the battle. Why do you suppose that God will cast you down before the enemy? For God has power to help or to cast down. Now listen to Amaziah. I I just am so much like Amaziah. Amaziah said to the man of God, But what about the hundred talents I've given to the army of Israel? Right? Yeah. I'm going to lose it. The man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. Do you actually believe that God is able to give you more than all your losses? Do you really believe that he's able to support you 
and provide for you as you follow him and depend on his strength alone? Do you really believe that there is enough strength in Christ Jesus for you to be content? I'm not talking about what you think when you're sitting in your armchair by the fire with your feet propped up in cozy slippers. I'm talking about what you believe when you come into the field of battle. Maybe it's a physical battle. Maybe it's a spiritual, maybe it's a family battle. When you come into the field of battle, do you cling to the reality of what is actually true and believe God then? I appreciated what was written by a pastor in New York who had an article published in the New York, um, in the Atlantic, actually, excuse me, in the Atlantic. He's battling pancreatic cancer, and he says this, I have spent a good part of my life talking with people about the role of faith in the face of imminent death. Since I became an ordained minister in 1975, I've sat at countless bedsides and occasionally even watched someone take their final breath. I recently wrote a small book titled On Death, relating a lot of what I say to people in such times. But when a little more than a month after that book was published, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, I was still caught unprepared. After receiving that diagnosis, this pastor writes, I spent a few harrowing minutes looking online at the dire survival statistics for pancreatic cancer, and I caught a glimpse of my book on death on a table nearby. I didn't dare open it to read what I'd written. As death, the last enemy, became real to my heart, I realized, please catch this, I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart or I would not be able to get through the day. He continues, theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or be discarded as useless. That's the kind of believing we're talking about. It's the kind of belief that lives in discomfort and distress and even in the pain of war. It's the kind of belief that clings to what is true about God no matter what. You're no pauper. You're no loser. Do you believe it? One final note that's useful for us this morning. You're no orphan. You are no orphan. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul moves on from the ability to be content in any circumstance through Christ to a descriptive means by which God meets our needs in verses 14 through 20. Listen to what it says. Yet it was kind of you, Paul writes, to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek a gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now listen. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 
So God uses us to meet other people's needs. God credits our gifts to others to our account. And God meets our needs from his own inexhaustible treasury. What is the treasury, Paul? And he tells us God's treasury is the glory he has in Christ Jesus. Now I want to just stop and ask you a question. How much glory does God have in Christ Jesus? I mean, there are many ways in which I have not glorified God in my life. How about Christ Jesus? How much glory did God get through Jesus' life? Well, all the glory. There was no way in which God was not glorified through Christ Jesus. And he has all of his glory residing in Jesus alone. It is from that supply, endless glory, that God will meet every one of your needs. He's never going to run out. There's not going to be a supply chain shortage. He will get you what you need when you need it because his supply is unending in the glory he has in Christ Jesus. Your father is immeasurably rich, so ask him. Ask him for what you need. In fact, that's actually in the context here in Philippians chapter 4. If you look back at verse 6, it says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. You are not an orphan. Ask your father for what he alone can give to you. Your Savior is immeasurably strong. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There is no limit to the boundless power of God in Christ Jesus. He is immeasurably strong. You can do what you need to do in facing less through Christ Jesus. Your Father is immeasurably rich. All the glory of God resides in Jesus. And from that spring... From that bank account of endless glory, he meets your needs and he promises he'll do that. So we can just say with Paul, as he does in verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So how can we be content when we have little? Well, we can build this life on the life to come. This is just the appetizers. When we have food and clothing, we can be content. What about when we have less? When we suffer, as Paul describes himself suffering here in Philippians chapter 4, when he suffers hunger and need, well, we can call on the boundless strength and endless provision of God himself. Most of our lusts for more are counterfeits for the God-made desire in our hearts, something that he made us to long for. But they're counterfeits. They're longing for something more, but not for something more that comes from God. The something more God made us to long for is not more than my neighbor, or more than my friend, or even more than my enemy. He made us to long for power and riches that are completely outside the realm of this world and beyond the power of men. He made us to long for the strength and riches of God, those things that are ours in Christ Jesus alone. 
We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can even be content with less. Jesus supplies us with strength, and our Father meets every need according to his riches in glory. Coming up, I want to take you to an even lower spot, but not this week. Lord willing, next, how to be content with loss. Because we can be content with less, little, and loss. But for this morning, I just ask you to think. We know that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The particular context is actually contentment. And the way that you practice it this week will actually demonstrate whether or not it's just a plaque on the wall or if you actually believe it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you, the God whose glory resides in Christ Jesus, have given yourself to meeting our needs that through Christ Jesus we have all the strength that's necessary to be content in any circumstance. Oh, Father, I'm going to need that this week, probably this afternoon. And, uh, and my friends here are going to need it too. Would you help us in that moment of coming to a crossroads, a decision about how we're going to treat a disappointment or uh, news from someone that seems to be successful when we don't or whatever the particular situation is, would you help us at that crossroad to simply believe you, to believe that you truly are good, that you know what's best and that you will do what is right. We can do all things. We can even be content through Christ who strengthens us. So strengthen us, Lord Jesus, we pray, for the great task of demonstrating the character of God to ourselves and to the world watching. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Just as I am with one plea but thou thy blood was shed for me and thou bidst me come to I come there.
this father with me may we all empty ourselves this year and so we are praying more of you and less of us help us to be content with the beautiful salvation you have given us we pray that you light our path and we follow your steps and you help us to get on our knees as we were saying earlier in sin, Lord that you help us to discipline our bodies discipline ourselves that we be repentant and we be willing to work with you so you can use us in all for your glory. Help us to look at the things above and all the things that distract us here below. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we leave, please uh, don't forget to pray for those who are sick. Uh, you know, uh, Larry and Nita, they're not doing very good. and uh, Well, he's not doing very good. So pray for him, for his soul, and for the family. Also pray for... Uh, Roger and Eileen, uh, they're not, he's not doing very good too, so uh, you can keep him in your prayers. May the Lord bless you, and please, if you, uh, there is some goodies there to have some fellowship, and we can pray for you so you can come to uh, Rob, uh, Pastor Cal, myself, and Delisle, so we, can, we are more than happy to come and, and pour in you. May the Lord bless you.